Profiles and Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. All right, hello and welcome everyone to Profiles and Strategy. This is uh, episode uh, number six, um, the uh, the rise of the superpowers, which is uh, World War II and the early Cold War. I am Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps, your host. Joining me today, my colleagues from the Strategy and Policy Department at the U.S. Naval War College. First, we have Dr. Dex Wilson. Dex, welcome. Next, we have Dr. Next, we have Dr. Michael Dennis. Welcome, Michael. And last but certainly not least, Dr. Nick Sarantakis. Welcome, Nick. All right. So, uh, gentlemen, I thought we'd start out the conversation today by talking about the differences between, um, because this, at the senior level course, uh, we talk about um, great power competition and grand strategy a lot. So, looking at World War II through the lens of the strategic coordination or lack in thereof that was happening with the allied versus the axis powers and um you know one of the ways i thought we'd kind of start off the conversation was um is the europe first policy uh and the allied coordination that kind of made that happen uh so nick why don't we uh why don't we throw it over to you to start out well um both the americans and the british quickly realized that uh, uh Europe controlled by the Nazis is a bigger threat than uh, Asia and Pacific dominated by the Japanese. And that makes obvious sense if you're British, you know, you live in Europe or at least right off the coast. Uh, uh, for the United States, it's a little bit uh, more difficult sell, but essentially Europe has dominated world affairs since the 1490s uh, when the Spanish initiate the age of exploration and, you know, you see European ex uh, conquest of, you know, the the new world so europe is still the primary theater and there's a realization in washington that they really have to make sure that uh, europe is not dominated by the nazis the nazis are hostile to the interests of the united states so that is a realization and uh, the person who really hammers it out is harold stark he's a uh, chief of naval operations and the famous memo is the planned dog memorandum and what he does is he sits down in his kitchen on a Sunday morning uh, with a cup of coffee and starts writing this memo. And he just keeps going. And he ends up putting in about 12, 18 hours writing this thing. Um, and um, ultimately, he says, you know, he looks at different options. And, you know, at this point, you realize you have a war with Japan coming. You have a war with Germany coming. And he basically looks at these options in good Naval War College fashion. He kind of goes through counter argument rebuttal. And eventually he says... You know, the option that we need to go with is number four. It's a little different than the way most people write their papers where they give you the thesis up front. He basically goes, you know, counter argument, rebuttal. This obviously won't work. Let's look at number two. And it ultimately comes down to his fourth argument. But he says what I just said is, you know, Europe is the primary place, you know, and we have to make sure we win there. 
interesting stuff. Um, Michael, any any thoughts on this one? Well, I mean, I you know want to second what Nick said, but we we are your first nation. I mean, let's just face it. Uh, getting Americans <laughs> interested in Asia in 1939, uh, let alone 1940, was difficult. I mean, the only interest we demonstrated was that we passed the Two Ocean Navy Act, uh, and that was as much a form of economic stimulus as it was a strategic choice. I mean, it provides us with a set of opportunities later in the conflict that are no other nation has, right? That is, we have, I mean, we can fight in the Solomons, for example. We can fight at Midway even. And yes, we win those battles, but the point is, is that we're fighting with a true disposal force uh, in very Corbettian terms. Uh, the loss of those will not affect our ability to protect the homeland. And at the same time, you know, even if FDR and Congress don't want to admit it's Keynes, military Keynesianism, it is. I mean, the horrible truth about this war is that our ability to be the so-called arsenal of democracy, which we are no longer, was predicated on the fact that we failed to recover completely from the Great Depression and had an immense amount of unused productive capacity, including skilled labor, and that we were able to then use to rearm and rebuild ourselves. And so that's a really important point because, you know, I hate saying the New Deal didn't work. It did to, to a point, but it did not generate enough aggregate demand, if you wanted to be an economist, which I don't, uh, to fix the economy. And, you know, the war in Europe is, you know, generates demand for American produced goods, which we use, you know, we talk about Lend-Lease, but remember, from like 36 onwards, we're selling goods to European nations as they are rearming and as they are rebuilding. It's a it is an important part of our economic recovery. War was very good to the United States. Uh, so, Michael, just just to tease that one out really quick. Uh, so, Keynesianism, you're talking about John Maynard Keynes. Yes. And and the concept of what spending your way out of. No, it's uh, not spending. It's the notion that the government is the buyer of last resort. That is, consumer, uh, the Great Depression is, uh, is caused in part not by the stock market crash, as our colleague Anand Toprani would say, but by the seizing up of the instruments of credit in the early 30s, particularly in Europe. I mean, when banks don't loan to each other, you know you're in a bad place. Uh, we saw that, by the way, in 2008, 2009, uh, when the daily interest rate, I forget the exact abbreviation of it, uh, rose dramatically because banks were worried that they would not have, that if they lent to their, their counterparties, their counterparties in finance talk, uh, that is the people they had loaned money to would not be able to repay them the next morning. And that was a, that's a shock to the system. The seizing up of that, the raising up of the trade barriers, like the Smoot-Hawley tariff, uh, all this, you know, stuff aggravates the great depression. It really precipitates the ultimate crisis. And Keynesianism was a you know, John Maynard Keynes comes to understand and writes eloquently that, in fact, if 
I'm trying to get rid of my debt and Dex is trying to get rid of his debt. And all four of us are trying to get rid of our debt simultaneously. Well, we're not going to have money to spend for goods and services, right? And who can spend? The government can. They are the makers of money. And the most important thing, and Anand emphasized this in last year's lecture, and I will just emphasize it here. I don't know what this year's lecture will do. Once you get off the gold standard, it's not that you run the printing presses, but you alleviate a fiscal straitjacket. I mean, and that's really important. And because you need to spend money in order to give people money that they will then spend. I mean, the reason we invent things like the Civilian Conservation Corps is so, yeah, you know, my great relatives at the time did not earn a fortune doing that. On the other hand, they earned enough to buy a beer, to buy a burger, to buy a, a meal at a canteen, which generates demand throughout the, the word we are all so familiar with now, the supply chain. That's what you want to do. Once the, you know, you need to keep those supply chains open, liquid, solvent, pick your word, that's all. So that's what Keynesian is, is recognizing that government can provide liquidity in crisis. And it, it, you know, that's in a sense, military spending, it makes jobs, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I'd, I'd say you, yeah, I'd say too, um, you know, pun intended, the, uh, the essence of sea power is liquidity. Uh, we've seen that uh, throughout the course, uh, especially in the writings of, of Paul Kennedy. Um, you know, for, for all those reasons, the ability to finance debt, to move money around, to have credit, and especially insurance, was absolutely crucial to the rise of the Pax Britannica. I mean, even back in the, uh, in the Peloponnesian War, we see Athens, um, you know, melting down the statues. Uh, in order to, to build more triremes because navies spend. Armies eat, navies spend. Um, so while the United States is, is caught somewhat on the back foot in 1941, it has that excess potential, especially in the credit uh, and manufacturing, uh, to, to crank things up uh, and make the two ocean navy a, a, um, a reality in, uh, in quite short order. Whereas um, <clears throat> Japan goes into this war um, with essentially no credit, uh, with an economy a tenth the size of the United States, um, and an industrial, you know, and only a partially industrialized country, and uh, you know that shows uh, wears over time. Japan going from you know pound for pound the best navy in the world to to a navy that's just completely out outclassed in quantity and quality uh, in very very short order in the course of the war. And, you know, students may want to refer back to the RJ war to see a sort of early intimation of this, because while the Japanese could borrow much easier than the Russians, even at the end of the war, they still did not have the industrial capacity to replace their fleet should it be necessary. And even in this war, they will slowly lose that capability. They will build, after all, that giant battleship at the end, but, you know, and sail it to Okinawa where we will sink it. Um, right. and it is, and also, I mean, and I, you know, my favorite fact about Japan during this war is that when their ostensible allies, and I, I know we want to talk about this ostensible alliance, go to Japan to see their war, war manufacturing, the Germans are stunned. 
you know, the Germans knew about mass production, industrial production, and they're looking at the Japanese and going, you guys are not, you know, they're, they're not making, for example, planes in any quantity because they can't. They, didn't under, they did not understand mass production in the sort of American sense. And ironically, the only plane they did mass produce was the Zero. Why? Because the guy who ran that factory had worked for Ford and he understood mass production. He knew what an assembly line was. He made one. I mean, the irony is after the war, you know, we're going to get Toyota and Nissan or Datsun, as it was in my youth, all making these great cars. Well, some better than others. And, um, but, and Honda. And yet before the war, they could not mass produce. They really had not understood it. And uh, that's a, you know, that's going to be a problem because this is a war of industrial economies. And as Professor Kennedy says, you know, right so eloquently, you've got to be able to make stuff. I mean, that's the lesson of the present, right? You know, you must have an industrial economy that can mass produce things. I mean, I got to make more HIMARS. I got to make more 155 shells. I mean, the notion that I hear that, you know, we're going to give the Ukrainians the Patriot, right? That's great. I'm all for shoot, you know, fighting to the last Ukrainian. But let's not forget, we don't make Patriot missiles in any large quantities anymore. And we need to step up our game. And the problem right now is, you know, we complain about inflation and rightly so. I, I don't wish to make light of it. But guess what? defense contractors are actually hoping for a recession because they need skilled labor that they will then pull from other parts of the economy to build these production lines for HIMARS, Patriots. There's another system, AL something, uh, the long range missile. I mean, come on, this is the war in which we have learned that almost everything we have been investing in, F-35s, missile defense may be worthwhile, maybe, I don't know, but uh, may not actually be what you need for the conventional war of the future, especially a war in which there is clearly no sanctuary and where somebody finally read the strategic bombing survey and realized, hey, I should blow up their infrastructure, not their oil. I should blow up their electrical generation because guess what you can't have a modern economy without? Electricity. That's what I'm freaked out by. I mean, you know, that's you, you bring up a great point. My, I want to, I want to come back to that one in a little bit. But before we move off this point, um, so just the, the getting back to the question of the Europe first policy. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, despite the famous movie quote, you know, when the Germans bomb Pearl Harbor, and Dex, I know you'll appreciate that one. Um, that's actually not what happens, right? It's the Japanese who bomb Pearl Harbor on December seventh, night. Yeah, no, shocking. Everyone nowadays thinks this that, is revisionist history. Yeah, that's right. So, so, but if you're if you're FDR and the American public now has this this revenge bloodlust for Japan for you know attacking the Philippines and Wake Island and and uh, and you know. Uh, Pearl Harbor and all the all the places they hit on on December the seventh. How do you convince the American public? Oh, by the way, our policy is going to be Europe first, and we're going to take on the Germans. Like, how does that how does that work, Nick? Why don't we start this one with you? Yeah, 
FDR is confronted with this situation. Everyone agrees that uh, you have to uh, defeat Germany first, and the big dispute becomes how do you do that? And the British are kind of, you know, they're in a different strategic situation. They've also faced the Germans, and they've been kicked off the continent three times. We all remember uh, Dunkirk, but they're also kicked off the continent in, Nor in Norway, and they're kicked off the continent in Greece and Crete. So they've got a little bit of respect for the German army that the U.S. Army hasn't really got. And their attitude is, oh, you guys have just been beaten up a lot and you're a little gun shy. And there's an element of truth in both. But uh, the dispute becomes, where do you go? And the British are basically saying, we need to dance on the periphery, do stuff. It's basically a very Corbettian approach. They want um, to use their air and sea power as an advantage, uh, pick places where the Germans don't have that advantage and lead them. Uh, the Americans want to go straight across the channel, and the idea, at least, is the most direct route to Berlin is through France, and that's over the through the English Channel, um, and they want to build up an army. And the thing that people don't remember about World War One, or excuse me, World War Two, is that we when when we enter this conflict, we're in a position of weakness. Uh, the military needs to build up. And uh, the army is, you know, it's got a foundation, but it's only a foundation. And that massive army of 1945 doesn't exist in 41. So what they're talking about is building up this military and putting them in England for a year. So we're going to sit out the war. And Roosevelt says, no, we're not going to do that. Um, he realizes that um, an active theater, even if it's a peripheral theater, still trumps an inactive theater and at this point in time uh, the japanese are you know beating us up and slapping us around and uh, the pacific is where things are happening and people are angry so he says we got to go and fight in europe and uh, we got to we got to kill europeans even if we're not in europe so that's why we go to north africa at first and um, you know we fight first the vichy french and then the then the germans in a, in a few months but um, that really is the right strategic call. I mean, tr Marshall's upset about this because they're going to the periphery and they're not building up. But the idea of that you can sit out the war for a year and build up is just not politically realistic. So FDR is, you know, FDR makes things look easy. And I think that's the mark of a true master is you look at this, and you know, I could do this. And the answer is no, most, most politicians can't do this. FDR has gotten himself elected three times by this point uh, a lot of good people have tried to do that in the past and haven't been able to do it uh, and uh, he understands the american people so in a democracy you know you need to have leaders who understand this but in any war you have to understand that you have have to have incremental victories and inactive theaters are inactive and all this sort of stuff so uh we're we're fortunate that we have a very gifted strategic leader in the White House. Mm. Dex, why don't we go to you next? Uh, I just, I just say, I mean, while we have the Europe first policy, um, we we don't we don't exactly follow it to the letter. Um, at the same time, we're um, you know invading North Africa. Uh, we're in a very hot fight with the Japanese uh, in Guadalcanal. Um, so there's two peripheral operations that are happening simultaneously. Uh, but Michael mentioned it earlier. I mean, we could, we could afford to do that with the assets we currently had um, in the Pacific in terms of the ships um, and knowing full well 
that there were more ships uh, coming. Um, you know, it was the nature of that particular conflict. Um, moreover, those the assets that were in the Pacific would not have been particularly useful in the Atlantic. I mean, the the nautical geography, if you if you if you mind that butchery, um, you know, is is fundamentally different in the Pacific. Um, so the relationship between um, surface and air, uh, and particularly the utility of aircraft carriers in these sort of archipelagic uh, settings, um, you know, that would not have pertained uh, in the Atlantic. So in one, one sense, the United States can afford to fight two wars operationally, uh, but still can have that sort of political focus and strategic focus on Europe. So he can, you know, Roosevelt has the ability, both the, the, uh, the wherewithal politically to do this, but also he has the means to mm -hmm. do this, to satisfy um, some of the, 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 the revenge passion, um, but also uh, sell his rational course of action, uh, what he thinks is the best match between um, uh, policy and strategy uh, for the U.S. Uh, and that's, a, that's a neat trick. Mm. Okay. Just, I would just Michael. point out one important point, which we haven't mentioned. You know, Hitler does do us a favor by declaring war on the United States on December 8th, and the day after Pearl. And by doing that, uh, gives legitimacy to the Europe first strategy. And more importantly, gives legitimacy to the Stark memo, the planned dog memo, uh, by essentially saying, look, allowing Roosevelt and Marshall, even though he doesn't like not uh, fighting, you know, remember is what is a sledgehammer is a would have been an operational nightmare. But uh, the whole point is simply, he, you know, and by the way, there is a tinge of racism here too. The Germans are the problem. They've got an industrial economy. They are the best scientists, engineers in the world. Uh, not as big as they were before, say World War One, but they're still the best and brightest we fear um and that fear will you know shape our perceptions of the war in many ways uh there is a profound irony to it but it is the case hmm. yeah interesting um so let's shift the conversation now to the other theater since we've already kind of started to talk about it um so dex uh being a being a china type uh subject matter expert um the Japanese have been um, involved in China really since what? I mean, you could say first sign of Japanese war, right? But let's let's, let's say since World War One, they've started to seize uh, places in China uh, like like Tsingtao and and mm -hmm. and they've gotten more and more involved. And now this this whole Manchuria thing in the late 30s and establishing the puppet state of Manchukuo and um, and more and more instances have happened. Heck, the Japanese sink a U.S. ship, the USS Payne, in uh, in what is it, the the Yellow River? Um, yeah, and you know, um, so things have been getting worse and worse. Uh, you know, the horror horror atrocities that happened at Nanjing when they when they take Nanjing. So we've uh, the United States has started to put more and more um, diplomatic pressure. Uh, mm -hmm oil embargo uh and then as uh i think it was michael mentioned we we eventually figure out oh by the way we need to build a navy because japan is not getting any better so is it this 
this war between China and Japan that really kind of draws us in to to World War II more so than more so than Europe, do you think? Yeah, I think I think you know what um, what an American audience in particular needs to know is that the the origins of the Second World War, at least U.S. involvement in the Second World War, lie in China. Uh, it is exactly what you're saying about this this um, this long uh, plan to achieve continental hegemony uh, for an island nation like Japan. But you know the army is the most important service. The the navy is secondary, uh, and rather than you know and and the maritime empire is there to service the home islands, but also to service the war effort in um, in the mainland. Um, you know that's the rationale of going to the to um, Southeast Asia to get all those material resources to better fight the war on the continent. Um, so. As you say, it is the sanctions we place on Japan um, that drive them, <clears throat> and also this this southward push to, to get resources through this window of opportunity in late 1941, uh, which you know brings the United States into uh, the war that's already going on, not just in Europe but but in Asia, um, and that the last battle um, of the Second World War is an absolutely climactic uh, clash between a massive Russian army um, that invades and conquers Manchuria uh, against the Japanese. Uh, and I point out that Manchuria is the size of France and Germany combined. Mm. Um, so to give a sense of the scale of this military operation that goes on in August of 1945, I think we'll come back to that later. So China plays a huge role in this and we cannot neglect this today because um, you know, this is one of the, uh, probably the defining tragedy of China's modern history um, and, and drives the way the, the Chinese think about their national security uh, today. Mm -hmm. So um, another thing you know, to, to consider too is that the United States is down the list of adversaries for Japan. Um, I would say the Soviet Union, um, historically Russia, and this goes back to, um, to the period you're talking about in the 1890s, um, that this quest for continental empire puts Japan at odds uh, with, with the Soviets. Um, and secondarily, China, because if you think about the amount of resources that they pour into that war, uh, you know, dwarf, uh, particularly when it comes to manpower, uh, what they commit to the naval war. Um, so, they're they're at a disadvantage as well, and they're sort of confronting this this Putin problem, where they they you know they have puppets that they're ready to set up uh, in chunks of territory that they annex, uh, but mm -hmm. they cannot manage to beat Chiang Kai Shek because Chiang Kai Shek can trade space for time, mm -hmm. um, he can get drips and drabs of support, uh, material support from the United States and other foreign powers, he can get moral support from the United States, which is important. Um, and just won't quit, even yeah. even given the horrific amount of destruction that the Japanese wreak. Um, and then that, you know, leads to this broader escalation of the China war. So mm -hmm. it's uh, it's important to remember, and it's also also, um, you know, as a crucial theater and a cause of the war, but also how it resonates today. Yeah, Michael, go ahead. I just a, a, a modest footnote to Dex's comment. Look, 
Our colleague Sally Payne's book, The Wars in Asia, actually offers you, you all the students and, and all the readers of the book a possibility of reframing Europe first into a profound recognition that no matter what the documents say, we are in Asia the whole goddamn century. Okay, we're there. We may not want to talk about it, we may, but we are there. We're a player from the open door debates on, you know, at the end of the uh, 19th century onwards. And, you know, one could argue that, yes, we are very down low, as Dex pointed out, and Sally as well. But the problem is, is that once Japan decides it wants to be a continental power or violate Sunza's dictum, know yourself, know your enemy, by saying, hey, I'm going to be, I'm, I want to be China and supposed to, I'm Japan. Uh, and that that is a profound moment where we are forever going to be involved there. And our failure at the highest levels of government to understand that, that Admiral, for example, one could argue that Admiral Stark's whole memo is a profound blindness to what Japan was and could be. Our problem is simply the Pacific's really big. And as Dex points out, I, I, I'm not sure I it would have coined nautical geography, but the, uh, no, it, but the whole point is that those distances at that time require weeks of steaming just to get to the, you know, battle space. And for us then it's a great advantage. For us now, of course, it is a profound disadvantage. Uh, and that's why we have all these bases in the area. But uh, it is, you know, Wally McDougall has a book about the Pacific and I actually think he was onto something. We are a Pacific nation and we have been one really since the end of the 19th century, if not sooner. Mm. And, you know, think about how we open up Japan for trade. Uh, that guy's statue is uh, downtown Newport. Um, so that's just something for the students to keep in mind because we do teach the fact that our government believes that Europe first, but our actual history looks a lot like actually we're equal opportunity making a mess in places. Okay. <laughs> well, even so, uh, what's the, what was the statistic? Uh, I think it was like 51% um, of our naval uh, force is actually going towards the Pacific even after the Europe first policy comes out. So, you know, but uh, Nick, let's let's go to you for next on this one. Well, you know, it's um, that is the question. And one of the, one of the things you have to do is you have to balance your force. Uh, you have to how much do you send to Europe? How much do you send at least a material supply do you send to your allies through Lend-Lease? And how much do you send to the Pacific? And there are opportunity costs. I mean, a lot of the weapon systems that are developed or the that we have don't really work that well in European waters. I mean, there's not a whole lot for aircraft carriers to do. And after you've defeated the U-boats, I mean, the U-boats are going to stay there and be a problem until not the end of the war. But uh, after about 1940, mid-42, you've, you've taken care of most of the problem. And after that, you know, you just need to be able to get guys onto uh, the coastline, be it in North Africa, Sicily, Italy, or or uh, Normandy. But um, you know, there's some things that you just say, okay, well, we're not going to be able to use this. Use this, but some of this stuff, you know, uh, MacArthur is a uh, a sea power general. He's the general of a sea power. 
He's got a peripheral uh, theater, but um, it is a big task. As Mike pointed out, the Pacific is really, really big. Um, and if you, I have a slide that I'm going to show everyone. It's an overlay map where he superimposed the outline, uh, outline of the United States on MacArthur's theater. And it turns out MacArthur's theater is bigger than continental United States. So, you know, you, you can't do it with just the Marine Corps divisions that Nimitz has. You really do need infantry units from the army there. The problem is, is those units are not in Europe or Italy or, well, Italy's part of Europe or North Africa. And there is an opportunity cost for fighting that way. So, yeah, I mean, and, you know, I'm not sure if you send most of your naval resources to Europe, it makes much of a difference. But um, so it all depends on what you're using. But um, essentially, you know, we say Europe first, but we are, you know, it's, you know, two wars at the same time or maybe 1.75 wars at the same time. You know, we are really fighting on two fronts almost at the same time. There's one front that has um, more priority, but not, you know, overwhelming. Oh, Nick, I think you froze on us there. Or, or you? Or, no, no, no. Okay, okay, okay. You just stopped. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Good deal. No, that's cool. Um, so, yeah, that, that's it's interesting points about um, about uh, the two theaters. Um, I want to shift the conversation now to uh, something we kind of mentioned before. Uh, and Michael, I think you started us off in terms of talking about this, the concept of economies, right? And we. Um, and what strategy do you use to to win economically? And obviously, we have our own um, industrial production and lend lease, as you mentioned, Nick. But we also come up with this strategy, and it's in both theaters, not just not just against Japan, of destroy the enemy's economy. Mm-hmm. And it, it's kind of this somewhat of a bastardization of Guglio Duhay's command of the air theory about um well if you just if you just destroy their um you know bomb their cities destroy their their economy then you then you magically will win the war um and we try to do this in in we try to do it against uh against germany with the combined bomber offensive and we also have this this policy against japan as soon as we our bomber forces get uh, close enough to be in range of of bombing Japanese cities. It's not just the atomic bomb. It's we're annihilating Japanese cities uh, by you know daily uh, with incendiary bombs. So you know the the but yet as we saw it this um, when the when the Germans tried to do this to the British, it only made them fight harder. And one could argue that it um, it's it's not a viable strategy. So why, why choose this strategy as a, uh, as a potential war winner? And, and Michael, I can see that you're, uh, you're chomping at the bit to, Not to chomping so much as, but there are a couple of late things you, not that you've left out, but need to be stated. First, mm-hmm. we make a decision early on that we're only going to have a 90 division army. Okay, mm-hmm. that, that's a gamble. By January 45, we're beginning to think we might have made a mistake because all our reserves have been used in the Battle of the Bulge. So the 9th Division gamble is a big part of this discussion. Our belief about air power it, needs to be a little bit more nuanced. 
uh, the Germans initially engage in a counterforce, that is, they attack military targets. But once the British bomb Berlin, they engage in a counter-value offensive, that is, they start bombing cities. Yes, that pisses people off. Douay's theory was that if you killed enough of the civilians, they would want to, they would demand that their leaders sue for peace, since they would have been reduced to sort of industrial savagery, as as the air power theorists of the 20s and 30s called it. Now, I would just point out a couple of things about that. It is, first off, hitting your target is really hard in the Second World War. Um, Remember in the Williams, the uh, piece in the um, Williamson and Murray volume, they talk about how the Allies kill more cows than people initially. And, um, you know, the farming farmland, we can't hit anything. Um, the Norden bomb site is, you know, this great secret that they make movies about. Uh, we would have been better off giving it to the Germans. And um, um, it, it's only through electronic means, you know, once we, the battle of the beams and the use of radar for trying to do precision bombing, that we get any effects on their economy. Second, what does it mean to destroy someone's economy? We do not understand our own economy to this day. That is why we are so surprised when things happen. Imagine trying to understand the German or the Japanese economy. Yes, everyone needs oil, fuel, energy. People need to eat. Okay, am I gonna bomb foreign land? Am I gonna bomb railways? Uh, Hitting a railway is a problem. Hitting railheads is difficult. We uh, have incredible problems with these, what we now think of as trivial issues. But to this day, I mean, we will see again in the Korean War, and Nick will talk about it next. You know, when you're told uh, the Air Force, you can only bomb the North Korean side of the bridge. You can't bomb the Chinese side. We can't hit the bridge, so it really doesn't matter which side you're aiming at. Um, It's just important to keep this in mind that what is the economy? I mean, Germany makes key decisions in the 30s that will eliminate options later. For example, you know, everyone says, oh, you know, bad Star Trek. The Germans could have had an atomic bomb. No, Germans had a Manhattan Project. They had several of them. It was to build the synthetic fuel plants that they did build and that we did try to bomb and destroy. And it took us a while to make aviation fuel and fuel for tanks and gasoline, okay? Coal hydrogenation uh, development from the 20s was their massive wartime investment, okay? You know, leave out the V1 and the V2. That's irrelevant to this. They wanted to, they needed energy, and so they tried to make it internally. That was their big thing. Look, the United States, you know, we are a country, a continent masking as a, masquerading as a country, okay? Our oil is what fuels the war. The Middle East is irrelevant at this time. I mean, remember, in the Middle East, the British are cut off from their, you know, Persian concession, after all because they lose control of the med. I mean, not until the Guns of Navarone is filmed and uh, for the movie lovers in the audience. And uh, so just keep that in mind. What about their economy do you need to destroy? We barely, you know, we blow up, we hit by accident, I often think, the Hamburg electrical generating facility. And Speer does write to Hitler, if they do that again, we may not be able to survive. 
mm. because electricity is the you know the key fuel so to speak and we have only lately come to realize that remember in kosovo we developed that uh, the graphite um fiber weapon which the cruise missile deploys to short out a grid well that's actually what you know one could worry about someone doing to the united states right i mean we already see people shooting up electrical substations although i gotta tell you that strikes me as crazy electrical substations are filled with something called pcbs uh they're poisonous that will kill you maybe not immediately but you know that cancer is going to bite you sometime so mm. i just really think you have to take into account the combined bomber offensive was yes we're going to destroy the german economy what was the german economy we didn't have a good grasp of it that's why the strategic bombing survey makes such great reading besides its beautiful illustrations because it shows you wow all the assumptions we had about their economy were wrong or were mm. profoundly flawed similarly for japan we can't what does it mean to destroy their economy i mean they're very decentralized and what do we do we burn their cities to the ground because we cannot hit them with precision explosives even lemay realizes finally i, I can't do it so he's just going to burn them out a counter value strategy our and also the mining of the sea of japan is probably one of the greatest aerial mining offensive ever and the problem is that we run out of mines because the navy in its inimitable wisdom does not like mines and to this day and that's a real problem because talk about cheap war i mean mines cost very little to make b29s you already have them you drop every day you mine the sea of japan every day you force the japanese to sweep the mines in order to because that's how they move their coal reserves around you force them to do that that's real cost imposition plus as they move them around you use your submarines to sink uh ships coming in and out the few that are left i mean there are islands offer unique opportunities for a modern form of siege warfare that continents do not i mean i'm not going to blockade china right but i can blockade japan i can blockade britain if i wanted to right that's something the germans fail to do in both wars so mm. but these are choices that get made early i would also point out that 90 division gamble why i mean what do we have as an advantage that we can do that is we put aside our racism and sexism briefly and put women into the workforce and african americans we allow them to do the really crap jobs in the military and whereas the germans and the japanese have a harder time mobilizing their civilian populations to engage in war work particularly the germans don't want to really use women they just want to use them as breeding stock and that's a you know we're able to put aside that temporarily and that's what gets us over the hump by the way when january 45 secretary of war patterson goes to fdr and says i'm going to enlist because he's so upset that we're running out of troops and fdr tells him i'm not going to let you do that that's you know you're six, you know 60 some years old you're not going to make much of a soldier and uh, but the choice would have been we need more workers in the factories well who's going who are you going to hire more women you'd have to put them in management no men didn't want that 
more blacks and Hispanics. Mm. And think about down south where you had put a lot of your industrial production and also in the west. The west coast, the big uh, zoot suit riots were about uh, giving Hispanics more work and greater positions and more in a sense power over the wartime economy. And while FDR had made it so that through literally his force of personality that you would not have strikes. Let's not forget, at the moment the war ends, there are massive strikes all up and down the West Coast in the airframe manufacturing plants just every day. And that's a real, you know, Terry Truman doesn't know what to do. I might add, the Air Force does know what to do. They start to let contracts for the development of what we now call numerically controlled machine tools to try to replace skilled labor. And uh, that's an important part of the post-war era. But anyway, I told uh, you, I'm sorry. I'd like, I'd like <laughs> yeah, to, let's, let's get, yeah, go, go ahead, Nick. I'd just like to jump in. I don't, I don't want to dispute anything that Mike said, but um, I've always kind of had this idea that Duhay wrote a book about how to defeat Italy and just assume that, you know, Italy's domestic issues were uh, France and England's and the United and, States. And it worked. It worked against Italy because, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Duhay's, I mean, strategic bombing is crucial, if not decisive. And I think decisive is the right word in defeating Italy or forcing Italy to surrender and then switch sides. Um, and then half of Italy, I mean, Italy become, starts a civil war in Italy because you have fascist element in the north, etc. But um, what little strategic bombing takes place in Italy uh, really quickly breaks the will of the Italian government, or at least the, you know, the monarchy and the establishment, the revolt, uh, they've already kind of arrested Mussolini. So uh, there it works. And, you know, we always talk about, you know, um, you know, mirror imaging. Well, I think Duhay did that. Uh, um, you know, there is evidence to suggest uh, that uh, strategic bombing worked against Germany and it worked against Japan. It's it's controversial, but uh, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest it doesn't work. But um, with Italy, I, there's I think there's very little doubt. I mean, it did the job and very quickly too. Hmm. Okay, Dex, any thoughts on this one? I'm good. Okay, um, so I guess it uh, it's a good segue to shift the conversation to talk about war termination and the different way that war termination kind of plays out in the two different theaters. Um, and I know Michael wants to argue that the atomic bomb uh, ended the war because uh, <laughs> I said that just to throw a little zinger at you, Michael. Thank you. Uh, but um, yeah, you know, uh, allied strategies is, is calling for one thing, but then at, when we get to the very end, it kind of, there's almost this like, we just want the war over with, as opposed to having it go on another another two years. Uh, so, Dex, why don't we why don't we start this one with you? Um, in the in the sense of of how how we terminated the war or how the war ended. Um, well, I think I think in the case of Japan, um, I mean it's it's a it's the bomb plays a role, um, but there it is a role among a, a number of factors. Mm -hmm. um, I would put the Soviet invasion of Manchuria on par with the bomb. Uh, I would put um, the uh, basically the blockade, um, all of the total destruction of the Navy. Uh, but I think uh, when it came to Hirohito's decision making, uh, ironically, that 
um, his faith in the army w- was declining. And the army was mm. talking about grand strategy, not grand strategies, these strategies to, to, to fight on in Japan and then potentially <clears throat> to fall back to China and fight on from there. And um, his, he eventually worked up the courage to, to realize that, that that just wasn't gonna work um, mm. and made the decision to, uh, to, to end the war, to override the, uh, the army for once. And um, <clears throat> so it's a, it's a complicated set of circumstances that we still debate, um, but I wouldn't chalk it up you know, just to any single factor or to, um, you know, it's, it's a mix of, you know, if you think about the bomb, you think about the, the incendiary bombing. So you have the strategic bombing debates, um, counter value, counter, counter force. Um, it's about, uh, it's Mahanian, it's Corbettian, uh, it's Je ne Cole, it's all, all the naval strategies. We, we break them all out in this war. We break out all the different types of air power. Uh, and you throw into that a massive Soviet, you know, blunt center of gravity attack on the Japanese army, which was the most powerful um, political force uh, in Japan. Uh, so all those things sort of coalescing at one time. And this, so this is, this is the United States and the Soviet Union against a desperately poor, completely shattered island nation. Um, and it takes all, all of those theaters operating at full capacity to mm. get them to, uh, to quit, which is amazing. But yeah, there was uh, a certain amount of war weariness, not just a certain amount, but there was a lot of war weariness. There was concerns about the strikes uh, that Michael talked about, uh, concerns about repatriate, of uh, demobilizing uh, the army, the impact that, that the, the, those uh, 90 divisions and uh, the impact that that might have on society mm. uh, back home. Um, so there was um, in Asia, and we can talk about Europe is a different story. In Asia, there was, I think, a rush to the door. Um, and we did commit resources to the reconstruction um, and reordering, reconstitutionalizing of Japan. And Japan is a huge success story. Um, but elsewhere, um, in the Philippines, we, accept, we, we stuck almost to our original timetable for granting the Philippines independence. Uh, so that's a year after the war ends. Um, you know, and then we we make deals to allow the French to reassert their influence in uh, in Indochina for all sorts of European reasons, and the United States decides not to commit um, a significant amount of force, manpower at least, to support Chiang Kai-shek in the Civil War, um, and the wreckage that was continental East Asia and the receding tides of that war meant there was a lot of you know those those issues of you know, how do you stabilize uh, the post-war order? And I think uh, the, the U.S., um, understandably, um, could have done more, uh, could not have solved all those problems, but could have done more in looking at winning the peace uh, in mm. East Asia. Uh, and there's a big contrast there to uh, how they approached Europe. Mm. Great point. Or at least uh, West, how they approached Western Europe. Western Europe. Yeah, sure. Um, Nick, why don't we go to, to you next? Well, the interesting thing about this is, you know, um, uh, Roosevelt declares unconditional surrender and we end up not doing it. Um, mm. Italy gets to switch sides. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a complicated mess in Italy. Uh, 
Uh, Germany, I think we pretty much say unconditional surrender and we break, uh, we, the United States and our allies, including the Soviet Union, break Germany up into four pieces uh, and eventually two. I mean, Germany is not allowed to exist as a unified nation for, you know, 45 years-ish. Uh, Japan, it's murky because there's some ambiguity to this in uh, there was a guy named John Dower who wrote a really interesting book about the occupation of Japan. It actually won the Pulitzer. And he basically makes the argument that MacArthur uses the ambiguity about the status of the monarch and the monarchy, which are two different things, uh, mm. to basically force a lot of concessions out of the Japanese early in the occupation. It's like, you know, come on, guys, you know, this isn't resolved. So um, is it unconditional surrender or not? Or is it some kind of conditional surrender? And the answer is, um, I've been studying this for 20 years, and I'm not quite sure even now. Um, so you get three very different um, outcomes. And then all those little countries that are part of the Axis is uh, the Hungarians and the Romanians and the Bulgarians. Um, you know, we, we, we signed tr peace treaties with them in the early or late 40s. So uh, of course, most of those are occupied, at least in part, by the Soviets, so that's a different story. But at least the three countries that we have a say in, we end up with three three very different results. And some of that's their importance in world affairs. Um, you know, Italy hasn't been important for about two, two millennia. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Germany and Japan are pretty valuable pieces of real estate, as the war proves, and who controls their political diplomatic orientation is, is, is significant. Okay. Um, so I'll tell you what, um, Michael, do you, I do want to get to the last question, but do you have any quick thoughts on this one? Yeah, I just want to second what my colleagues have said, but just, there's a simple way to describe it. The end of the war is overdetermined. Okay. There are so many causes. So any attempt at a monocausal explanation is, is bad strategy. Because it doesn't get it just, even though, as Dick says, we're fighting a nation that's on, on its heels at the end of the war in the summer of 45, you have only to read, pick up a New York Times or a Washington Post or the late Washington Star. There were headlines arguing for the use of poison gas against our Japanese enemy. Remember, a violation of the laws of war and one which we had not engaged in. And while the Nazis did use poison gas to kill Jews, they had not used poison gas on the battlefield. That doesn't make the former better than the latter. It just means even they realized that they couldn't engage in that because FDR had sent word essentially, you do that, all bets are off. Mm. That's all. So, but yes, I know we are probably running low on time and need to. <laughs> So I want to I want to frame the last question in the context of the contemporary, because uh, this case study also talks about the early Cold War. So it's, you know, as soon as Potsdam happens and we make all these agreements of Potsdam and the Soviets, other than attacking Manchuria, as we as we mentioned, basically all the other agreements start to come unglued and they impose communist rule on all the uh, Eastern European uh, nations that their, their forces occupy and which goes against the whole you know, self-determination and, and whatnot. So um, we come up with these, as we move into the early Cold War, we see Stalin as kind of a, you know, back to his old tricks, rogue actor, there's no more existential threat of Nazi Germany. So we come up with these two different strategies to um, 
to deal with the problem of, of a communist expansion around the globe. And one is uh, the, the, uh, the George Kennan idea of containment, just hold these key areas, these five key areas, and you're good. Doesn't matter what happens anywhere else. And the other con contrasting point is the Paul Nitsa, you know, you have to engage everywhere and, and, and you know, actively try and, and uh, prevent the spread of communism. Um, and I want to talk about it in the context of today, in the sense of what's going on with China right now in the, in the South China Sea, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Taiwan, and what's going on in, in Ukraine with Russia. We seem to have chosen the engagement, the Paul Nitsa-like, you know, let, let's fight, let's have this aggressive form of containment um, in the sense of we're, we're sending billions of dollars worth of aid in Ukraine. Um, and we've drawn a red line with, with Taiwan. Um, you know, is, is this the, the, how do you do containment? Is it just hold these key areas and you're good? Or is it, or is it actively, um, you know, roll back and, uh, engage everywhere? We seem to, again, have chosen, um, the engagement strategy, the Paul Nitzel-like approach in the, in the contemporary realm. Uh, it, it won us the cold war. So is this the right course of action going forward? And so Nick, why don't we start this one with you? Oh boy. Um, all right. Essentially what you have is, you know, Nitzi's or excuse me, Kenan saying strong points and, uh, Nitzi saying basically it's global and we have to fight communism everywhere. Um, and essentially, if you go throughout the Cold War, um, each administration kind of goes back and forth. One administration will go this way, the next one will go that way. So it's a Nitzi approach or Kennan approach. Um, I'm, I'm at this point in time, I think we've decided that uh, we, we don't want uh, Ukraine to be dominated, but we're not um, willing to send forces there. And uh, same with Taiwan, we're, we're providing indirect help. Uh, so I, I think what we're doing, at least my assessment, and I could be completely wrong on this, I think we're kind of pursuing a, um, a half, uh, something that's halfway in between, but let's say it slightly favors more uh, the Kennan approach. We're not going to engage directly, we're going to support people. So it's almost Kennan combined with Corbett, you know, we're going to so we're going to help our friends and we're willing, as Mike kind of pointed out, willing to fight to the last Ukrainian. I think there are some really interesting kind of um, connections to the case study with current events. I mean, the Ukrainian war is teaching us that, uh, you know, our military industrial complex isn't all that much of a complex anymore. So, and we kind of learned that even with COVID that we had farmed out a little bit too much to other parts of the planet uh, which basically is a polite way of saying China. Um, so we need to start, you know, saying, hey, what do we need to have here? Uh, the other thing is Congress just passed a military budget, and I'm talking about like two months ago, three months ago, where they basically said uh, no to the administration and said, we're not going to tolerate a shrinking of the Navy. We we're, we're actually want more ships than what you're saying. And if you go back to the World War II environment, you have Congress doing the same thing. Uh, people credit the expansion of the, the Navy to Roosevelt. But if you pay attention to the actual uh, details of the dynamics, it's Congress that is pushing this. And 
it needs to start pushing it early. Uh, the first piece of naval legislation is passed in 33, and then it culminates in 1940 with the Two Ocean Navy Act. And you constantly see Carl Vinson uh, pushing. He's a congressman from Georgia. He's pushing all this legislation through. So you kind of see a lot of these similarities. You know, we haven't pulled back from world affairs. We don't like what the Russians are doing to the Ukraine. We don't want uh, Taiwan to go under, but we're not willing to directly engage. And uh, I, you know, so there are some there are some direct con uh, continuities. We're going to supply our friends. And uh, we're starting to learn that we, you know, don't have quite the industrial production that we think we have. And we need to start doing some re-industrializing. Re and uh, as Mike pointed out in a previous podcast, that's never been done before. So it's a challenge. So, you know, we're, we're facing some unique challenges. And I think there is some, you know, relationship to what happened in the past. Uh, and in one sense, we have a more difficult problem today because back then, um, there was the evil alternative. It's like, hey, Japan, you really want to cooperate with us while we institute these political reforms, because if you don't, there's the Soviet Union. And it was the same message for Germany. Cooperate with us or you might end up like your cousins in the East. So yeah. uh, I, I see a lot of contemporary relevance and similarities. History never repeats itself, but it sure rhymes. Mm. Yeah, interesting points. Michael, let's go to you next. Quick and dirty thing is this. Containment was a strategy long before Cannon wrote uh, either the Long Telegram or the X article. But the difference between, in a nutshell, and a gross simplification, and my apologies to my much more sophisticated colleagues, the difference between Cannon and Nixa is simple. Cannon believes that the United States is fine as it is, and we need only to stand up with our moral values and everything will be okay, and we will defeat them as long as we concentrate on those five regions. Nitsa says, screw that. I want to change America. I want to change it profoundly. I want a big conventional military, a massive nuclear deterrent. I want to use military spending to grow the economy. And guess what? He got his way. But he's no more conservative than a, a, a radical leftist. They both want the most profound changes. Now, he got a world that, you know, we live in a world in a sense that NSC 68 made, but it is like all conservatives, they always want to do something to preserve their traditional ways of life. Well, I got to tell you, the, NS, the world NSC 68 made, made civil rights necessity, made giving women more rights a necessity, meant the birth control pill meant everything from the 60s onward. That's what NSC 68 made. Now, you want to talk about the present. What are the domestic changes that Americans be willing to countenance in order to compete with the Chinese? Not to go to war with them, but simply to compete. I don't, we don't pay taxes. I know, yes, in Rhode Island, we all pay taxes and you know, it sucks. But no, we don't. And yet we want many things. I mean, the irony of modern American, whatever it is, conservatism is simply that everybody who's marching on the Capitol got a government paycheck you know, from Social Security <laughs> or Medicare. Uh, older white Americans are, including my late parents, were, who were quite liberal, I just want to say for the record, uh, would uh, 
need the state. And yet we have one party that argues the military is the only part of the state we need. And we have another party who thinks we should be doing something else. If you go by the Cold War, what are we willing to change about ourselves in order to confront or deal with these rivals? That would require us to become a productive economy as opposed to just a consumer economy or a service economy. Anita Prana and I always ask, and this is something that you can get out of Kennedy if you read it. And just think, just substitute China for Japan in those last chapters. Okay. Can a service economy be a great power? Mm. Or is our military a vestigial organ of when we were a great power? And, you know, that's actually kind of depressing. And uh, because after all, we tell our students they are the best and the brightest. But do we really believe that? I mean, I th many of our students are excellent. Many are not. They are, you know, some are studies and some are not. But are they, are they the best to, are, you, you know, think of it like this, those kids who go to the Ivy League schools, do they see the military as a career path or who go to great state schools, see it as a career path? I got to tell you, before I came here, I did not realize that an 06 made so much. If paychecks are all that matter, you should be joining the military. Um, I, I guess it also, in, in fairness, Michael, not to push back on you too much, but it does, it does uh, bring up the point of how you define best. If best no, is simply, exactly. if best is simply the IQ, then I agree with you. Yes. No, no, I, no, no. I don't think actually IQ is what's best there. All I'm saying is that we have one set of definitions for best, and yet we keep telling ourselves we are training the best. Many of our students are the best. I really enjoy working with them and talking with them. Many are not, and it's, by the way, the same at a civilian school. Many are good, okay, and you and want to learn. After all, what makes a student good is a willingness to want to learn, to recognize that, you know, as long as I'm willing to admit I'm pretty ignorant, okay, about most things in life I've begun to realize, uh, or I've realized over the course of my career, well, as long as they're willing to realize that, we can both learn something together, right? And that's what matters at an educational institution, uh, that we are both changed. In other words, we want to be, in a sense, NSC 68. That Because regardless of its problems, NSC 68 made our world because it changed us and it changed the world through our actions. We shaped one another. And I, I just, that's the big takeaway from this case. Because if you get that, Yes, it is possible, but this is probably why Biden is so optimistic about the future. Okay, because he lived, this is his, he literally lived this world. Okay, that may be an advantage to, you know, and to having lived such a long and productive life in politics for him. So, but I got to tell you, you got to really make serious changes. And we're, you know, Obama famously said the United States is like one of those big, you know, cargo ships, you know, you can't turn them around quickly. Mm. Interesting points. So, Dex, we'll end with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I, I see um, Kenan kind of like uh, Pericles, right? Everything's, everything's good. We'll stick with it. 
you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be elegant, we'll be clever. Um, you know, this, is, this will all be over in a relatively short period. Whereas, you know, Archidamus is like, we, as Michael just said, we have to fundamentally transform ourselves. Mm. Um, you, know, you know, if we, if we are truly on death ground, um, this is how we need to, you know, bulk ourselves up, even, you know, getting in bed with the, with the hated Persians, no less, uh, to do that, you know, teaming ourselves with, uh, you know, again, in the Cold War, some, some not so savory allies over the course of that conflict. So I think, see a lot of resonance there. Um, but I think, you know, this has been a very help, healthy, healthy conversation because quite often in the process of net assessment, uh, you don't bring the microscope to yourself. You know the enemy, know yourself. Uh, it's primarily about assessing, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of the other guy without <clears throat> challenging your assumptions about yourself, John. You know this well from teaching, uh, from us teaching together. Um, so I think this is, th these are the types of questions, uh, to ask, what do, what do we want? What can we do? Uh, do we have the, um, you know, the, uh, all those elements of, of national power, how, how do they, how do they work? Um, what, what are, what are the ones we're missing? Um, mm. we're not even taking into account. Um, but I think here in this case, looking at Ukraine, looking at Taiwan, um, we have to be, be careful in the way we, we gloss, you know, know the enemy, uh, the way we gloss the, uh, the other. Um, and I am not a favor, fan of, of either regimes uh, in any, by any stretch of the imagination, but um, they, are, they are the governments of, of, of sovereign nations. Um, are, are they, you know, analogs for the Nazis and the Soviet Union? No. Um, but that seems to be how we, you know, um, uh, how we choose to look at them. And I think in the process of assessing China uh, in particular, we quite often look at it through a series of distorted mirrors, uh, mm. wherein what we're actually seeing is the opposite of ourselves or what we think we are. Um, so if we think we are a, a, a free, liberal, open, independent society, therefore China has to be a slave society and everything is closed and, you know, all the, um, um, you know, the, the incredible surveillance everywhere, um, you know, it's, it's whatever we are at their opposite. They think long term, we're, we, we only think in terms of, you know, two year congressional cycles, what have you. Neither of those things are true. Uh, and yet we, that's, that's the, the, the type of thinking we, we overlay on our adversaries or our potential adversaries. We can count the ships. Uh, we can look at the technology, but you got to dig deeper into who you're dealing with. Um, so I think that's something we, we absolutely uh, have to push on, um, you know, in this course, in all the courses here at the War College and, uh, you know, and also in, in your self-study. Uh, pick up, uh, pick up some good books uh, about China or about Russia. Uh, learn about Vladimir Putin. Learn about Xi Jinping. Uh, he's got a very interesting life story. And once once you read into that life story, you start to understand a little bit more the way he thinks. Try to understand the the surveillance state in China, not this image of this social this this myth of this social credit system. 
uh, operating out there. Um, and when it comes to the, the best and the brightest, um, I think most of our, many of our students would be surprised that most of the people in the Chinese Communist Party are very much like you, John. Um, they're earnest, professional go-getters. They're, they're, in, they're engaged. Um, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're, you know, yeah, corruption is a massive problem. Uh, but in terms of the, the youth that's drawn into uh, the Chinese Communist Party, you know, it is the kids who go to the really good state schools, as it were, or even the Ivies uh, in the U.S. Um, you know, that's the people who truly, uh, you know, uh, operate at the core of this system, whether or not they're, they're, uh, they do their jobs well because of the larger structure or running of the Chinese Communist Party is a completely different question. Um, but that's important to know as well, that the, the O5 level folks uh, in China are very similar to the O5 level folks here in the United States. And it's those people that man the, um, you know, the, the leading small groups that are the secretaries to, uh, you know, the members of the standing committee uh, who mm -hmm. work for them, who write memos. I mean, Stark writes his own memo. Most people, most people in that position of power now, you know, hand that off to somebody else to come up with the PowerPoint slides. But, um, you know, I think that's something, I wish we could. <laughs> some, something, something really to appreciate, uh, you know, as we move forward. And I think there that, um, you know, NSC 68 says one thing that really sticks in my head. He says that there's no way to render ourselves inoffensive to the Soviet Union except by complete subordination to their will. Um, whereas Kennan, um, the kind of brooding intellectual, um, he loved Russia. He loved many, many things about it. Literally and figuratively. Literally and figuratively, yes. And, um, you know, as, as a result, he, he has his interpretation of, you know, Russia in that document um, and in the, in the long telegrams is much more accurate um, than the characterization or even the caricature that we get in NSC 68. Well, that's that's brilliant, Dex. I think I'm going to use that distorted mirror line as the tagline for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Uh, a fascinating discussion, as always. That is all we have time for today. And we will see everybody next time on Profiles and Strategy. Thank you.